Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome to those of you who are here and to everyone who's with us on Zoom. Uh, At the Center for the Political Future, we're proud to co-sponsor this event with the Wrigley Institute. And I'm honored to welcome Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who is up for re-election this year, and who has, on more than one occasion, taken independent stands that transcend partisan lines. Our aim is to have a candid conversation, and we have about 45 minutes. Uh, So, Senator, here's the first question. To most Americans, the U.S. Senate looks profoundly dysfunctional. I remember a time when a Ted Kennedy and an Orrin Hatch could work together to ensure health care for 8 million poor kids in America. Beyond infrastructure, is that kind of cooperation possible today? Well, first, thank you for the opportunity to be here as part of this this dialogue. You're asking a question that a lot of Americans are asking, which is how dysfunctional is our government? Because some of the things that you see don't look very promising out there. And I would think uh, for many young people, particularly disheartening, so I am here to give a small glimmer of hope that all is not lost. I have been in the Senate now for almost 20 years, so I feel like I've got a bit of a of an historical perspective here, and it has changed. I served with Ted Kennedy, and I served with Warren Hatch, and I saw the good things that two men of goodwill and good faith with very diametrically different views on things could come together because they knew that common cause needed to be had. And so I know it's possible. And I know it's possible not because of their example, but of the example that we have seen with others. Senator Stevens, who I served with from Alaska, uh, working with Senator Inouye from, from Hawaii, they said, you know, we're brothers. We just, we work back and forth. And we should not look to that and say that was those were days bygone and it'll never be that way. But it takes effort. Every relationship takes effort. And it has become easier and easier to just fall into partisan roles, to just take the party line. You don't have to work as hard. You don't have to think as hard. You just have to basically follow the leader. I don't think that was why I was sent to Alaska to serve Alaskans, was to follow the leader. I think that they asked me to represent them in a way that I felt was best for for them. And so it is possible to do, and I believe it is necessary to do. And we've proved that all is not lost, that even at a time of, of very partisan politics, highly politicized at this point in time, we can make things happen. Following January 6th, following impeachment in the Senate, there were a small group of us that said, not only is policy important, but we got to prove to the public that we can actually do something. And so commitment was made to try to find a path forward on the infrastructure. And it wasn't easy. It took months and months but we not only demonstrated that, we went on 
we just passed and got signed into law, the Violence Against Women Act. Uh, again, a very bipartisan effort that was not easy. You wouldn't think that that would be a challenge, but it was not easy. There is an ongoing effort right now with about 15, 16 senators evenly divided to work on, on election reforms after the failed effort of earlier this year. And I think it is important to know that behind the scenes, the good efforts are being made to advance bipartisan reforms. So it's harder, but it's necessary. Uh, do party primaries impede this yes. make it more difficult? Absolutely, they do. Absolutely, they do. Because what we have seen through our primary system is those on the, the, the far right and those on the far left in your party primaries are the ones that are really making things happen. They're getting, they're getting organized. They've got the resources. And the, the pull then is for the candidate to, to go as far to either side as they can to gain the endorsement of their party. And they make it through the party primary. And then the electorate looks at that and says, well, I don't like either one of them. You've given me the extremes on either side. Where's, where's the representation in the middle? Where, where's my voice here? So I'm not a big fan of closed primaries. And Alaska actually did something about this in the last election by referendum. We got rid of our closed primary. We will have what's called an open or a jungle primary, which is anybody that's filed for the United States Senate can put their name on the ballot, and the top four names will then advance to the general election in August. And then even general, there will be a ranking. So it's going to be, it's called ranked choice voting. You will rank those individuals. My hope is that what this will do is it will not only free the lawmakers up who are elected to realize I don't have to just focus on this party base. My responsibility is to this whole electorate because it was this bigger group that got me elected, not not the party. So you won't have to have Murkowski pencils that people carry to the ballot to write in a name. No write-ins this year, which is a fine thing. We had to do that in 2010. I was taken out in a party primary. In a party primary, I was beaten by a Tea Party candidate because I was deemed to be too moderate. Uh, I didn't toe the party line often enough, and and the Tea Party candidate gained advantage. And uh, what was interesting was the response from the electorate who said, well, wait, wait, wait. There was only like 14% of the electorate that said, this is whose name is going to be on the ballot. We want to say in this. And... I said, well, there's not really a process for that. And they said, well, we're writing you in anyway. So you can either join us in allowing that to happen. So I had to teach everybody how to spell Murkowski. <laughs> and, uh, you couldn't bring a pencil into the booth because we actually thought about that. That's what Strom Thurmond did back in 1952. And he's the last person that was successful with a write-in. But it was a lesson to Alaskans that if you really want a say in who is representing you, you can go outside that party structure system. It's very unconventional. It's not easy, but it can be done. You do seem to be one of the few independent, relatively few independent voices in the Senate. Where do you envision the GOP heading if the party takes back both the House and the Senate in November 2022? And the follow-up to that would be, what policy priorities should 
the party focus on in the next Congress if they take power? Well, you you will, once again, hear me saying some things that make you think, boy, she's not a very hardcore Republican. I think that regardless of whether it's the Republicans that take control or the Democrats that have control, they need to be focusing on the things that people in this country are really concerned about right now. I don't know about you, but everybody back home in Alaska are talking about the high price of everything. You're paying a little bit more for fuel here than just about anywhere else I've seen. And I come from a place where we have the highest, highest energy costs in the country. And so, you know, what are we doing about inflation? What are we doing about our debt? What are young people, you know, as I'm talking to young people, it's like, for heaven's sakes, the debt that we come out of school with and our opportunities for participation in the, in the workplace. So, I think we should be focusing again in these areas that, that the country is engaged with. We spend a lot of time sending serious messages, but not necessarily enacting some policy. So I think we're, we're going to see a situation where the House, in my view, will flip. I think we're going to see the Republicans take control of the House. Right now, if I have to fight to put money on what happens in the Senate, I'm saying it's probably a 50-50 shot that Republicans would take that. But think about what happens when you have a little bit divided government. All of a sudden, kind of forces you mainly to work together a little bit. The House and the Senate are going to have to work together to get some things done. Instead of what you're seeing right now, with all the House, Senate, and the White House all held by Democrats, it's kind of the push is to get as much as we possibly, possibly can on our own while we still have this moment of total control. But remember, you don't have total control when you are in a 50-50 Senate and in a house where you are so closely divided. You better be able to kill every single person and count them twice if you think that you're going to govern that way. Think about what that means. If everything has been advanced on a partisan base, don't you think that the Republicans are going to spend every minute of their time in their next leadership trying to undo what has just been done by the other party? And so if we're looking for clear policy directives that business leaders can rely on, that industry can rely on, we all will want to build out and do more. But if the policy signals are confused, because you think it's just going to be this this whiplash from one administration to another, we're not going to be drawing our country in a way in the manner that we need to. Let me talk about one place where there's a deadlock that seems almost incomprehensible to me. We face the prospect or the possibility of another COVID spike, and the Republicans and the Democrats are deadlocked in terms of appropriating the funds to get ready in case the country, and by the way, Alaska tourism, get hit hard. When dealing with what is literally a life or death issue and potentially an economy killer, shouldn't there be some way for Republicans and Democrats to get together on this? Well, I'll give you a little bit of, of historical perspective there um, as I talk about how we might move forward. So this was right after the elections in, in 2020. Literally, we had not finished counting ballots in, in, in certain areas when there was discussion about what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? COVID is still just hitting us hard all over the country unevenly, but in my state, 
we were really hit hard, and our economy was hurting. We needed more legislative relief. And we got back after the election, and the leadership in both the House and Senate, Republicans and Democrats, said, we just had an election. We're going to wait until January. This is November. This is November. We're going to wait until January to address this. And you know, the wheels in Congress so don't move slow, don't move fast. Any <laughs> news that this was going to be months and coming. And I said, Luskie can't wait. We need help now. And so what do you do when you need to solve problems? You invite people over. And so we had a small dinner at my house, eight of us, four Republicans, four Democrats. And uh, I organized this with Mark Warner, who was a Democrat from Virginia. And Mark says, we, we got to figure out something. So I said, well, come over to my house. I said, my husband's out there. He's the one that cooks. And he said, well, I don't cook either, but I got a big credit card. And so I'm buying dinner. So we bought a great Italian takeout for us. And we sat there. And because COVID was just hitting Washington, D.C. hard, we had to have all the windows open. We're all sitting around the living room there. It was freezing cold in the house. But some said, well, those are not going to come inside with all of you people that are carrying germs. Anyway, long story short, we said, we got to do something. We've got to give leadership the template as to how we resolve this. And that group of us worked through some hard things. And what happened over that Thanksgiving break was that we allowed for a breakthrough within our leadership because they realized that the need was there and we'd provided them with a path. We'd provided them with the answers. So we're all hoping that we are on a better side with COVID, that we are not going to see an additional outbreak that will impact us from an economic perspective and just just from the perspective that we have all felt in terms of the isolation and all that that has brought. But we, we will figure it out. I think it is important to know that fair accountings have been had and we recognize that we've spent a lot, $1.9 trillion dollars, um, in just last year uh, with regards to, to the COVID spending. So we want to make sure that, that there's some level of accountability but at the end of the day, it's about responsibility that we have to Americans, wherever you are, when we're talking about public health and public safety. Let me turn to another top of mind issue. A lot of observers uh, have been struck by the bitterness and partisanship of the Katenji Brown-Jackson confirmation hearings. How do you react to her nomination? And have we reached the point where Supreme Court confirmations will always involve an intensely partisan firefight. Uh, again, this is where I'd come to the discussion from a, a little bit of a historical perspective, because um, when I first came in, we were we had Supreme Court nominees in front of us. Yeah, the questions were tough and they were hard and they were probate. And there was, you know, there was some partisan divide, but it was not the intensity. It was not to the level that I think we have fallen in terms of how these individuals, everyone, everyone, regardless of whether you support them or not, come, you don't get to this stage where you are nominated by a president to be a United States Supreme Court justice. 
without having pretty stellar credentials. You just don't. So to be probing in terms of their their views and perspectives is absolutely appropriate because we're we're asking, we're selecting somebody to be one of nine, to be one of nine in the third separate but equal branches of government. So this is a big deal. But I think it is discouraging beyond words to see how how we in it's not even the Congress because it's the Senate's role, this advice and consent role, how we have so politically charged these confirmation hearings. And it is a disservice to the men and women who will put allow their names to be put forward and be considered. I met with uh, with Judge Jackson last week for our one-on-one. We, we sat down for about an hour and a half, and I was able to ask her just all kinds of random things, like, I wanted to know. She's got two teenage daughters. Well, one's in college. Then where do you want to be? That has nothing to do with who she, what, what she might do on the bench. But I want to know about her as an individual. I want to know about her as a woman. And I apologized to her in advance for what I knew was going to be coming. That this gauntlet that a nominee has to go through. And I, I don't serve on the committee, so I wasn't there for the 22 hours of questioning that she went through. I've watched some of it, and part of my homework this weekend is to go through much of that, to hear the questions that are asked, the tenor of the questions that are asked, and hear her responses as well. But think about what our process does to those who might wish to serve whether it is as a judge or whether it's as a United States senator or a congressman. If you feel that you've got to go through such a, just a, an awful, nasty, personal process, do you really want to do that? I can't tell you the number of people that we've tried to, to encourage to run for the United States Senate. You'll hear the stories come back saying, well, you know, I really want to do it. I think it would be great, but... I'm just not going to put my family through that. Think about that. What we lose in terms of a talent, because I'm not going to put my family through that. But you're still hopeful that we can get beyond that. I have to be. I have to be. Because what's the alternative? What's the alternative? A completely dysfunctional Congress? That's not tenable. Because think about governance in a democracy. Think about governance in the United States of America, where we're strong because we have these three separate but equal branches of government. And, you know, somehow or other, we've managed to work through good presidents and bad presidents. And we've managed to work through good Congresses and bad Congresses. We, we managed to work through it because the institutions are sound. But when you give up on the institution and you say it's just too foul, it's, it's politics are just too much. If the institution itself can't stand, think about where we are. Think about it in terms of U.S. democracy right now. If people don't believe that the individuals that are representing them were fairly elected, that the elections were legitimate, they're not going to look at that leadership and say there's any respect there or that I need to follow those laws. Or think about it from the court's perspective. If you believe that the courts are nothing more than a political extension of the legislative body or the executive branch, that they really aren't there for me, then why, why are you going to have any respect for the rule of law? 
And if you don't have respect for the rule of law, if you don't have respect for your leadership, you don't think that the rules within which we operate are there for you, what kind of a democracy do we have anymore? Democracy faces a wide range of pressing challenges. From systemic racism to persistent inequities in access, voice, and participation in public institutions and decision-making processes. From divisive politics and civil unrest to institutions that aren't responsive to public needs. It's not enough to just identify problems. We also have to locate solutions and work collectively to address them. Democracy Matters hosts conversations to inspire informed action with a wide range of scholars, experts, and practitioners dedicated to creating a more just and inclusive democracy. We invite you to join the conversation by subscribing to Democracy Matters wherever you get your podcasts. You said something while we were waiting to start this program that I thought was really important, that democracy depends on a shared reality. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And I, I, I shared in the town and said, I got to find out who actually said that. I wrote it down and I keep random notes on the back of envelopes and napkins and stuff and I stick them in there and I was looking at that because it is something that I think we're seeing play out right now with, with the awful, awful tragedy in Ukraine as we are seeing hospitals and theaters and, 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 and apartment buildings blown up. And had people killed uh, by by this war that that Putin has has wrought on on Ukraine, um, it should eat at all of us. And you think how how do we get out of this? How how does this end? And that was a question that was directed to to General Milley, I believe it was, who said. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and this was right before Putin invaded. And we were probably two days away from that, but it was very clear of what was happening. And the question was asked, well, how does this all end? It hadn't even started yet, but we already wanted to know how does it end. And he said, it will be when the mothers of Russia rise up because they see their sons who are being killed, their husbands who won't return. And I thought, oh, yeah, oh. but now I worry about that because I don't think that the reality that many in Russia are seeing right now is a shared reality because they had been told that these husbands, these sons are going to Ukraine to free the people of Ukraine, to a battle that is is very, very different than we are seeing play out. And so how can you rise up and say this is wrong if what you have been led to believe, the facts that you know, are not grounded in the reality, if there is no shared reality? And so these are challenges that we're facing right now. And when we talk about, well, how, how do you you find that shared reality. It has to be when you are willing to see the truth. Sometimes that's the hard step. Yeah, and where do you get the truth? Where do you get the truth? How do you get the truth? 
I mean, if you think about your Ukraine example, the Russians are saying, we're in there to fight Nazis. And the president of Ukraine is Jewish and has Holocaust victims in his family. So it's just complete fantasy. But it prevails. And I worry that we have fantasies here that prevail, too. I think you do. I mean, I take it back to last year, January 6th, where we had we had an attack on democracy. We had a, a mob of people who, who believed that an election had been stolen from them. And so they needed to stop. They needed to stop the certification of the election of our president. And so, you know, was it, is there shared reality there? You know, I thought I knew what I was, what my role was there. That, that day, that afternoon was to certify the results of an election where if I didn't vote for him, that's my prerogative as an individual, but it is not my prerogative as an individual, as an American, then to say that it's been stolen from me. So I'm going to talk about something that's a little bit the opposite of that before I get to the environment. Okay. In 1986, which dates me, I was the strategist and consultant for Barbara Mikulski, when she became the first Democratic woman elected to the Senate in her own right. Then came 1992, an influx of women who, along with Mikulski and Nancy Land and Kassebaum, the Republican from Kansas, began to meet together regularly across party lines and help each other out. That continued for years. Is it still happening today? Is that spirit still alive today? Well, you're making me smile because I have a very, very soft spot in my heart for Barbara Mikulski. We called him the dean. She was the dean of the, the women senators. He was the most senior when I was again. Um, and Mikulski, Murkowski, every now and then we would get confused a little bit. And we would stand next to one another. And he's, he's I think, maybe five foot tall at, at Fasten. And we would joke. As the two women, um, holes and, and she would say, I'm the one that is, she is vertically, and she would point to me and she'd say, she's vertically endowed and I'm horizontally embraced or something. <laughs> Just a, a super fun woman to be around. She isn't spitfire, but she made sure that the spirit of bipartisanship came through with the, with the women senators. And, and she hosted, um, dinners initially, uh, when at the beginning of every Congress, she would have a gathering in her hideaway for, so the women could get to know one another. And, and we built off of that. We would have these, these dinners, um, on a, on a relatively frequent basis here, maybe every six weeks or so. And sometimes, uh, one of the women centers would host it at their, their house or we would go to a restaurant. Um, get a back room and just just talk, just get to know one another. Sometimes we actually talked about specific issues. Uh, we worked on some uh, we worked on some legislation uh, as it related to to Burma and women and democracy, breast cancer. But a lot of times it was just so and so got a new dog, or how all the men of the senator is driving us crazy. Why can't they? Why can't they stick to a schedule? And if we were in charge, you know, you would never have these dinner hours interrupted. But it was a built common ground. And I regret that we have not been doing those as often as we used to. And I, I credit 
Bart Mikulski for doing that. We, we've gotten to have a bigger conference now, which is good. When I came in, there was 13, and we're now at 25, or 26, I think. Um, so that's good. We've, we, we've gotten much bigger, but we need to do more of the grounding in relationships with one another. But I will say that we still have a, we still have much that we can gain from these partnerships. It still delights me to this day that when there's a group of women that have gathered together on the floor, there's usually one of our, our male counterparts that comes over and says, okay, break it up. We don't like to see this much collaboration going on. I want to ask you about the environment. Alaska is rich in carbon-based resources. Is there a path to dealing effectively with climate change that also involves a transition where we rely on for a while on fuels like oil and gas, but we ultimately move to renewables. And what would that mean for a state like Alaska? The short answer is yes. We have to. This is, this is the responsible direction, and this is the future. We are a state that is blessed in, in, in oil, in natural gas, in coal, but we're also blessed with everything else. We have no shortage of wind. You might say we don't have much solar, but come up to Alaska in the summertime when we got 24 hours a day, thank you very much. And uh, extraordinary geothermal resources. I'm focused on, on our ocean energy, marine hydrokinetic or tidal, our wave. There's so much potential there. So the question is, does this have to be either or to which I say, Absolutely nerds. Absolutely not. We should be every day looking to how we are reducing our carbon emissions and what we are doing to reduce the carbon intensity in everything that we do, not just in our energy production, but everything else that is going on. So the push to move us fog of oil when it comes to our transportation fleet, just to me, is, is logical. And, and common sense. But we need to recognize that we are a society that for, for this moment in time, we're a society that is operating off of, of, of carbon-based fuels, off of oil, off of natural gas. And so as we, as we transition to additional renewables, additional clean energy, lower carbon sources, as we make that transition, it's not like you can just flip the switch and say, it's done. You don't need anymore. Because even if you've moved off of, of foil, uh, I, I'm sorry, half of what I'm wearing is a petroleum-based product and half of what is behind us. So we've got a ways to go to, to, to find those alternatives. What we need to, to embrace, though, is, is a is a transition that acknowledges the reality of how we get there. I, I have, um, I've spent a good deal of my career in the Senate focused on energy issues as chairman of the committee and ranking member of the committee. And so my world is, is really focused in this space. We've made considerable headway, um, in reducing our emissions, and that's good. But we cannot view that 
accessing our own resources is a liability to us. And if you question that, I would just ask you to look critically at the situation in Europe right now and the reliance that we have seen on on Russia for a resource that we or that what we the world needs. And so when you have the ability to produce your resources and you know this and do it responsibly and in a, in a way that is in concert with your environment, I look at that and say, this is, this is a net benefit to America as a whole. And so let's view that as an asset instead of a liability and not just an asset for us, but an asset for others as well. And so I'm going to give you one example to just tie this up. When it became clear that there is nothing that made sense about importing Russian oil to this country, about 8% of our oil comes from Russia. I don't want a penny of our money going to help fuel Putin's war in Ukraine. And that's how that's how he has made so much of his wealth is off of the resources there. So we're saying, we're going to cut that off. Well, you're going to have to get it from somewhere else. And there's no dial where we can just say, okay, everybody, you just need you know, 8% more here in the United States. It takes longer. That's a little bit longer of a view, but I think it's a view that we need to take. But instead, where did the administration turn first? There was an easy spigot in Venezuela. In a country that we placed sanctions on a good handful of years ago because of their horrible corruption and a, a legacy of human rights abuses and environmental awfulness. I know that that's not a technical term, but here you've got an administration that is saying, we don't, we've, we've run on the, uh, we've run on the issue of climate change and that's, that's, our initiative. And so we can't take our foot off the, off the proverbial gas here. And so we don't want to encourage more domestic production here. We're going to have to go somewhere else. So we're going to a country that we've sanctioned and who has the worst environmental track record when it comes to, to accessing oil. That to me is like, whoa, that is wrong. That is wrong. So. We got to make some hard choices here, but I don't think they have to be paused if we allow for a transition that is honest and and appreciate that you can't flip a switch to go from a carbon-based production to a renewable economy overnight. So let's send policy signals that will allow for the safe production done in an environmentally sound way in places where we don't have the human rights violations, we do have the environmental regulations, and it's going to benefit our own economy, jobs, and that of our allies. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue where it requires good honest discussion rather than the rhetoric from both sides. 
It does not have to be an either or a proposition. Uh, I think the president just heard you because he's just done this deal with the Europeans. I think it's to supply $15 trillion worth of natural gas over. I, I mean, that means you're going to have to ramp up production here in this country. I want to say this is one of the most interesting conversations we've had. And you exemplify a lot of what the Center for the Political Future is all about, which is to model and advance uh, politics where we respect each other and we respect the truth. So thank you for coming. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.